0: Good morning, everyone. If you listened to the lyrics of those songs, if you listened to Allie's encouragement, you've heard the message. And I pray that'd be the backdrop for one of the concluding messages we have on the First Peter series. We're finishing up the letter and uh, it's it brings quite the punch. So I pray that it will be encouraging you to you. Before we get there, though, at the beginning of, the, of this letter, First Peter, you may or not, may or not remember this, but in the first chapter, Peter says this, I'm talking about you, and it's emotional. Though you have not seen him, You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, I want to commend you because you're living in a culture that is offended by everything you believe in. We are opposed on every side, sometimes within our own families. We are attacked. And I'm not trying to say poor me. I'm not trying to say we're victims. That's not the point. It's understanding how God sees you It's understanding the perspective that's eternal and that matters. If you came up to me and said, prove to me that God exists, I couldn't do that. But I can tell you what he's done in my life. And that's you. And that's why you're here. And I just wanted to start the day off by commending you and thanking you. You have been such a joy in our lives. I was... Thinking about this earlier, and I thought, this sounds like my last message before I die. (laughs) I don't really mean it to be that way, but sometimes, uh, you know, it's just your heart comes out, and it's my chance to tell you how deeply Melody and I love you, and what a joy and privilege it has been and is now to be able to serve this church. As you know, whenever whenever we study Scripture— the ending point is always the same for us what does this passage tell me about God why was it even written never mind written but why was this preserved what does God want me to know we, we read scripture we study scripture as we have now uh, since the beginning of September just this one letter and we think to ourselves now that I've learned this now that I've heard these messages and I so commend all the men that have been preaching and teaching. So grateful for them. How is what I'm learning and heard supposed to affect my life? How does it change the way I live? Now, if you're like me, maybe it's age, I don't know, just maybe me, but I'm not sure I remember some of the first few sermons I don't remember a lot about what Chris said last week. I had to go back and look at it. So it's easy for us, it's easy, I should say me, it's easy for me to hear wonderful truths and walk out the door and almost forget everything I've heard. I'm hoping today won't be like that. But I would like for you to consider what is it that God wanted you to get out of this series. And you can ask the question, not just why God wrote it, but why did the eldership choose this for Metro now in our lives? Because most of it has been about suffering. And that's not a very popular subject. You don't necessarily get tens of thousands of people cr- people crowding in to hear messages on suffering. So what are we supposed to learn from this, and I titled the message, How Then Shall We Live? It's based on a a book that I've treasured for 40 plus years, but it, it applies to today. And the good news is Peter is going to answer the question for you very specifically. As you well know, sometimes Scripture isn't as clear as we'd like for it to be. If he would just put in a chapter on this, or just even one verse on that, it would be so helpful. But Peter today is very, very clear. So 1 Peter chapter 5, the last few verses of the letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering you are experiencing are being experienced, excuse me, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. (laughs) That's a brief letter, right? I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak to Peter, for Sylvanus to write down what Peter was saying, however that worked, and for us having it in our own language today. Lord, we do pray. For every language and dialect in the world, and we know there are thousands and thousands of people working on this very thing, but we pray that every individual on the face of the earth can have these words in their own language. And we thankful, we are thankful that we do. But Lord, we don't just want to learn more today. We ask you to change our lives radically by your word. You're the only one that can change our heart. You're the only one that can open our minds to understand. We are totally dependent on you to do that. So we ask for it. In faith, believing in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the word humble can be used as an adjective... And, as you know, adjectives are descriptive. You didn't know you were going to grammar class today. But it means to be low instead of high. To be mean, not magnificent. To be modest, to be meek, to be submissive. It's the exact opposite of pride. It's the exact opposite of being arrogant, assuming, and entitled. And in fact, throughout Scripture, it communicates the unworthiness of, our, of us as individuals compared to the greatness of God. It can also be used, as it is here, as a verb transitive, which means action. It means to reduce, to crush, to break, subdue, mortify, to make contrite. And the object of that action Of who should be doing this is you. Have you ever heard somebody say, Oh, I'm really being humbled by God right now? Does God humble us? Yes. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying, You yourselves, you humble you. Because really, we're the only ones that can do that, aren't we? Other people, I know wives, you probably tried. But you can't change other people. But God can. Can you see how radical and revolutionary this is in our culture today? It's offensive. Because we're being told every day, all day, be great. You are awesome. Look yourself in the mirror and say, you are okay. And we're trying to build our self esteem up. It's not what Peter's saying. The way to Christ, the way to godliness, the way to holiness is downward, not upward. This isn't capitalism. This isn't working your way up through the company. This is Christianity. This is living your life for the glory of God. A dear author to this church Here's, there's history there, but Paul Tripp, he, he writes this: "Are you impatient with others? Do you have to be in control? Do you like telling your story more than hearing the stories of others? Do you complain the minute life is a bit uncomfortable? Do you get mad when somebody decides to disagree with you? Is your life a life of humility? And those are provoking questions, but then he said this the more you are in awe of you, the less you'll be in awe of God. Think about that. Because the world's telling you you're awesome. And the more you believe that, the less you're going to reverence and care about the greatness of God. He goes on to say, the more you tell yourself you're okay, the more you will devalue his grace. Personally, that was shocking to me. I, I've, I've been actually working on this message for weeks because quotes like this really affect me. Scripture affects me, and it's, it's not always easy, or it's, I should say, it's rarely easy for me to process these truths properly because My human whatever doesn't like it. Just doesn't like it. And the scripture is clear. On our fallen state, we all want to be in control. We want to be God. Even if it's a little g-God. And our culture is telling you, You are a god. Ladies, you are goddesses. That's not the goal of life. Talking yourself into something that isn't true. Our culture is rife with things that are patently unreasonable, unrational, and even unscientific. And it's being purported as being true. So what do we do? Well, Peter's helping us here. You might wonder why did Peter throw this in after all this talk about suffering that he's done. Well, here's the quick version. Humility is directly tied to suffering. In fact, humility guarantees suffering. Isn't this an inspiring message today? Don't you just feel so built up? I don't hear any amens or glory to God's or hallelujah's and understandably so. These are hard words. Humility guarantees suffering. It guarantees loss. It guarantees disappointment. It guarantees struggle. That's what humility does. And Peter's saying, humble yourselves. And why is it so hard? Because we're not getting what we want. We're not in control. As a parent, now of adults who have children, who could have children sometime in the next five years, I want to be in control. And I'm not. I used to think I was when they were three or four. And that's proved to be fallacy. You ever had a little one look at you and say, no. I have one daughter. I won't identify her, but you'll probably know who she is. We're sitting in the family room, and there was something on the table she wasn't supposed to touch. I looked at her. She knew what the look meant. And she started to move her hands slowly towards it. I said, Lindsay, <laughs> no. And she looked at me and moved a little closer. I said, Lindsay, no. And she grabbed it with a big smile on her face. We joke about that all the time, so it's common knowledge. But there's, there's just this understanding... That when we don't get what we want, we're not happy. And again, the goal of life is not to be happy. You might say, okay, okay, I get it now. All my troubles are actually God humbling me. But who does Paul say does the humbling? We're being instructed to to do it ourselves. But notice he says it's under God's gracious mighty, and loving care. That's the key to all this. It's not self-abasement. It's not self-depreciation. It's not putting yourself down. It's not like when someone thanks you for something, oh no, it's just Jesus. That's a false humility, which I think personally is obnoxious. Someone does something really beautiful in serving of the church, and you, you go to them, and you say, thank you so much for the way you sacrificed, and you did all that. Oh, it's, it's just Jesus. No, I'm talking to you. Because what you're doing glorifies Jesus. It's Jesus at work in us. And it's a beautiful thing. But when we don't get what we want, we don't like it. So how? How are we supposed to live like this? How are we supposed to, um, you know, humble ourselves? When when we think about humbling ourselves, we think, well, why? What, What, does God get some kind of pleasure out of crushing us and, you know, grinding us down? Well, I grew up thinking that way. I grew up thinking that God was after me. Maybe some of you have thought this way yourselves. I thought that God noticed each and every mistake, that he took note of each and every sin, sin, and he intended to make me pay. And if I didn't respond, I was going to hell. So when things didn't go right, and believe me, I believe in hell. Don't misunderstand me. When things didn't go right in my life, I had it all figured out as just, just a young kid. God was doing this to me because I had messed up. How many times have you seen a parent whose child has a season of life away from the Lord, they say, oh, it was my parenting. I'm sorry, you're just not in control. Or when a child does really well, oh man, I did some really good parenting there, didn't I? No, that's not the point. The result of this kind of thinking was that God's after me. What that produced in my life is that every year I got saved at youth camp. Sometimes a few times during the year at special meetings. Why did I have to get saved over and over and over again? Because I was constantly trying to make things right. And as soon as I would repent and get saved, I'd go out and do something wrong again. And I would just tell you this, that is a miserable way to live. There's no grace there. There's a lack of faith there. There's really a lack of love and understanding of relationship. I had no clue about what Peter is saying here. We're told to humble ourselves that at the proper time he may exalt you. Don't just focus on humbling yourself, but at the proper time, he may exalt you. What, wait, what, what's going on here? This is God's motive for you humbling yourself. This is the force behind all of God's intensity. God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us and is good all the time, it says he cares for you. Why does God want you to humble yourself? It's because he cares for you. He knows where pride will lead. It will destroy you. You know, I see a lot of emphasis today on masculinity in the form of how you look and muscles and all those things. And a lot of emphasis on... Femininity based on your makeup and your hair and all those kind of things. Guess what, folks? That's all going to go away. Why? Because that's not the goal. It's not you being the best you can be. It's us living our lives for the glory of God. And I'm aware that I am saying things that are not popular in the culture. But I know you're here because you want to know what God says. And there's a lot of things that I'm not saying that should be said, and there's a lot that could be misunderstood. But I hope you'll stay with me. Sometimes, you know, when you say something and it's kind of radical to you, you can just stop listening. And that's really not helpful. (laughs) So if we're talking about building up our self-esteem, we're talking about loving God with all our heart and soul and mind, because we realize that we are valuable because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we have accomplished. Now, I'm going to give a warning. If, if what I've said already isn't bad enough, um, just this next statement, it, it could definitely be offensive. And I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying to care for you. I'm trying to tell you things I didn't know. <laughs> and it cost me in my life not knowing these things. Here it is. Everything in this life, everything will disappoint you. At the end of this life, you will lose everything. For most of us, that loss will be slowly. For those of us that are older, we are experiencing it. But you will lose everything. But you will lose everything for sure. I've had several relatives go through the whole process of living vibrant lives to now being in the presence of the Lord. You know what we watched? We watched them lose one thing after another. You say, wow, that's, that's a lot to look forward to, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because The loss of all things is going to produce something beautiful in you, and that is that you will treasure Christ more than anything. Think about that. For all eternity, you will have lived your life in such a way, not perfect, not sinless, you will have lived your life in such a way that God himself Says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Tell me, church, what else matters? Will my bank account matter? No. Will my popularity matter? Will my looks matter? Will the number of friends or Facebook friends I have matter? I know Facebook's old. But anyway, is any of that going to matter? No. Are you going to regret the sins you have turned your back on now because now you're in the presence of the Lord and all you've got is heaven no and we are to live our lives knowing that he cares for us and that instructs us as how to live you see the father the son the holy spirit are the focus of the past it is, they are the focus of the present. And they are the focus of the future. They will be for all eternity. Therefore, the foundation of humility is trust in Christ alone. The reason we can humble ourselves is because we so value who Christ is. Who our Heavenly Father is. We treasure the Holy Spirit. It is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. It is the fear of God that is essential aspect of humility. And what it produces in you and me is confidence. Confidence to face whatever you're facing. And I know enough of you to know There's some really, really difficult times going on in people's lives. We face those, devastating as they may be, with confidence. Remember David when he faced Goliath? Kind of a little kid. What did he have? Did he have any armor? No. Did he have any backup from the army? No. Was he very strong? Probably not. He had five stones. He only needed one. That one stone, the rock, Christ Jesus, hit Goliath right in the one spot where he wasn't protected. He fell, and the nation of Israel was delivered. How could David do that? He had confidence in God. Why? Because he had fought a lion and he would fought a bear. He already had seen what God had done. And so he looked at Goliath and in my own vernacular, I'm like looking at Goliath going, who do you think you are? He knew what God could do. And that's one of the beauties of being older. As you grow in Christ, as you mature in Christ, more and more you see what he's done. And it builds your confidence for whatever you're going to face. Confidence in and love for God is the only reason you or I will ever have the motivation or the strength to humble ourselves. That gives us hope. That is really, really good news. You see, throughout the life of this church, for almost 40 years now, and actually we started prayer meetings before we actually had our official opening, so it's been about 40 years. Humility has been an oft-visited subject. You say, well, why? Well, because we needed, needed it so much back then. We were young. We didn't know what we were doing. It would have been foolish to be arrogant and prideful and think we knew what we were doing, Well, you know what? Today, in this age, we need it now. We've never stopped needing it. In fact, you and I need humility simply to listen to or read the news. You're going to need humility through this election cycle. Humility is what's going to win the world not your viewpoint. Not the strength of your convictions. It's looking like Christ that's going to draw people to Christ. You say, well, I, I, I'm not really very good at witnessing and I really don't, you know, haven't told many people at work that I'm a Christian. I'm asking, how do you live? Because you don't necessarily have to go around declaring to people what you are. Let them see who you are. And then when the time's right, especially when they ask you questions, you can tell them. Verse 7 says, cast all your cares, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How can you do that? There's so much anxiety in the world. Seems like everybody has anxiety of some kind. How, how can you do this? It says be sober-minded when our world wants to get high, wants to get drunk. Be watchful. Uh, we don't have to pay attention to what's going on in the world or in the church. I just want to live my life. What, why? What, what is Peter doing here? He's describing different aspects of what it looks like to humble yourself. That's what this is. Humility is casting your anxieties on him. Humility is is bearing up, bearing burdens of others. Humility is being sober-minded and being watchful. It's our posture for how we live our lives day in and day out in public and in private. Now, casting your care, this word cast here, it it's, it's just like a sower in the old days that would have a bag of seed and they'd grab a handful and they'd throw it. They let go of it, they spread it. It was no longer being carried by them. And I, I'm finding, as a, a bit of an older man, if you were to ask me what's the most important and difficult thing that I've found in being Christian for over 60 years. My answer would be simply trusting God. That has been and continues to be the biggest challenge of my life. It's never been as great as it is this very day. So I ask you, where do you cast your care? Where do you cast your anxiety, your worry? What do you do with it? You're not going to process it. You cast it. Why? Because of your confidence in God. When the sower throws the seed, his confidence is that the God who created all this is going to cause that seed to germinate and there's going to be a harvest. And that harvest, then he will, he will be able to use to, to supply and pr- pr- provide for his family. But he does it not saying, well, I hope this seed works and I hope this seed works. No, he knows it will work. Because he know. and thank you, that's very kind. I thought about this and then I said, ah, oh, I won't need it. Thank you very much. Consider with me a couple of quotations by some uh, proven godly men. Charles Spurgeon. We cannot do God's work when we are weighed down by our burdens and our worries. (laughs) This is provoking, isn't it? Cast them upon him and then take up the Lord's burden which is a light burden and a yoke that fits us perfectly. You can see all these scriptures coming together there. Matthew Henry, who wrote an exhaustive commentary of scripture. The cares of even good people are very burdensome and too very often sinful. <laughs> I stopped reading right then. It's like, What? He goes on, when they arise from unbelief and diffidence, when they torture and distract the mind, unfit us for the duties of our place and hinder our delightful service of God, they are very criminal. Do you ever hear people say, I just can't function, I'm just so anxious? That's not God's will for us. And in this moment, way of thinking you know when I think of the word criminal I think of someone has done something really bad <laughs> I was shocked by that word why would you say that because to not humble ourselves to not live our lives with him as our focus it's an offense to God Charles Spurgeon again if you like those two first quotes you're going to love this one All cares of covetousness, anger, pride, ambition, and willfulness must be cast to the wind. It would be criminal to dream of casting them upon God. What? Does that shock you? Don't cast your cares on God? wait a minute, let him finish. It gets worse. Do not pray about them. What? This is a seasoned man of God who lived his life for God's glory. How, how can you say this? Do not pray about them except that God will redeem you from them. Let your desires be kept within a narrow circle and your anxieties will be lessened to a stroke. And this is a man that had much trouble in his life. Suffered physically greatly. And he can say this. Why? Because he came out of it. And it had its intended work in his life. Now these these quotes will be, on the web if you'd like to look at them again. I've had to look at them dozens of times. But to think about my anxiety, my worries, my cares being something that would actually hinder me from serving God can be seen in this day and age as understandable. Sure, you've had a hard day. You don't don't want to go to community group. You want to listen to a bunch of people talk and have to be friendly? The boss was mean to you today. You deserve to stay home and have a cup of coffee or whatever (laughs) and watch some TV. It's understandable. You need to care for yourself, you know. And again, I know there's a lot I'm not saying. So please don't be taking this to degrees that I don't intend. I hope you hear the heart here. What he's getting to is verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it says, what do we do? Resist him. Firm in your faith. There's that confidence. Satan here is portrayed as a lion. And those of you that know me know I love wildlife movies and series and TV and I just, I, I watch those things and I see the creativity of God. I see the greatness of God. I'm not trying to make it all spiritual. It just overwhelms me to see the intricacies of life. But when you see a lion um, capture a prey and they begin to eat it, I know it's not a great pleasant thought, but they devour it. You know what's left when they're done? Hardly anything. Maybe some bones. Why am I saying something so graphic? Because that's what the devil wants to do to you. Don't you think that's probably why the illustration was being used here of a lion? Because that's what they do. The lion, the scripture says, seeks whom he may devour. So how are we to fight such a relentless army? We already have all these anxieties and cares, and we have culture, and we have life, and we have finances, and how in the world are we supposed to fight all this, never mind the temptations that bombard our minds? Well, he says it in four words. Well, sorry, I was thinking two words specifically. Resist and be firm. Resist, stand on the rock, Christ Jesus. Stand. That's what spiritual warfare is, church. It's standing. I've been through Bible teaching where they taught about the armor of God, and they talked about how once you get the armor on, and I am mocking a little bit, forgive me, but then you get your sword, and man, you just cut the head off the devil. And it was motivational. But that's not what Peter is talking about. Talking about standing. Where are you standing? On the rock. Christ Jesus. That's your defense. That's your offense. We are not here. We are not left by God to take care of ourselves. The fighting of the enemy is something he does for us. As I mentioned, David, a few minutes ago. He had confidence in God, and the Scripture indicate how men of old were were filled with the Holy Spirit, but you know, in in the new covenant, you and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You don't have to be a David or another great man or woman of God in the Scripture to be filled with the Spirit. Every believer is filled with the Spirit, and not any less important, although not more important, you have beside you the church. You're not alone. That's why church membership is so important to us. Because we are committed to each other. Because we need each other. We can't do this on our own. Let me ask you, what do you think when you hear Fight the devil. Do you think of a fist fight? You think of wrestling? You Think of armies going to battle? You think of, you know, putting on protective armor? Well, if you go to verse 12 with me, you'll see that Paul, excuse me, Peter says it again in verse 12, stand firm in it. Stand firm in what? The true grace of God that's your victory. That's the only way anything that I've talked about this morning is even possible, is by the grace of God. Chris has mentioned to us through the series several times to make spiritual warfare normal. In other words, it's an everyday deal for all of us. And what does that mean? Every day standing on the Word. Every day standing with one another. Every day living our lives for the glory of God. And he said this, quoting actually from uh, 2 Corinthians 2. He said, for the devil to be your adversary means you are on the Lord's side. And that verse says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. The ultimate example of humility for us, the one who is the most effective in spiritual warfare, is Christ, our King. Philippians 2.8, and being in the human form, look at this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He's before the leadership of his society. And they're accusing him of everything under the sun. They bring in false witnesses to testify against him. And what did Jesus do? Did he argue his point? Most cases, he didn't say a word. How would we apply that to the political realm today? Today? Is it our place to yell at people and try to get them to bow to our beliefs? No. Our job is to show Christ. Because the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. Government is important to us, yes. We live in a country where we we have the freedom to vote for those who are going to represent us and set the laws. And that's an extreme privilege. But government isn't our hope. Who wins the election isn't our hope. We have to keep that in mind this entire year as we're bombarded preparing for the election. Our hope is in Christ. You say, really, yes. So much so that Romans tells us whoever does win the election is there by the will of God. Ever had a president you didn't like? Ever thought, wow, God, you're okay with this? I challenge you to read Romans 13. It will uh, stir you up. So, continuing in verse 9, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Perhaps uh, you've been listening this morning and, and you've been thinking about your own issues or maybe things you've gone through, the past and then Peter says something like this. Why? Why would he say it? Well, was being a good pastor. He knows that when you suffer the enemy whispers in your, in your ear where's your God now? If he's so good, why would he let this happen to you? Have you been singled out? Are, are you worse off? Aren't you worse off than people around you? People around you look so happy and so carefree and look at you. Oh, maybe God has favorites and you're not one of them. Peter knew because Peter experienced it. Because the enemy of your soul, he doesn't have any new tricks. He does the same thing to all of us all the time. That's why we're to be aware of his schemes. And so Peter says this to encourage us. And I would exhort you, don't let suffering break down your resistance to the enemy. Don't let suffering break down your will to stand against the enemy. Because that's exactly what the enemy wants. Now, he may not get you to renounce your faith. He may not get you to go out and just live like the world. But if he can shut you up, if he can hide, if he can get you to hide your your light under a bushel, that's victory. Don't let him do it. Verse 10 is the promise. Here's the good news. Finally got to it. After we have suffered a little while, and if I can be so bold to say, what God considers a little while and what I think is a little while are very, very different. But after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, that's the key to all of this, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now that is good news. And that is better and more reliable than any other truth in the universe. This will happen if you humble yourself, if you love God with all your heart if you serve him and love others this will happen and you say well what's my response supposed to be look at verse 11 to him be the dominion and glory forever and ever and then he finishes with a few very personal verses he's talking about Syvenius as being a uh, a, a faithful brother, um, he he talks about uh, she who is at Babylon, whatever her name was, uh, says she's chosen, and she sends you greetings. And Mark, who can he calls him my son, very very personal. And then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace, be all peace. Peace to all of you are in Christ. Now, as you know, we believe everything that is in Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why Why did the Holy Spirit lead Peter to write this? Is it just like a, a custom in that day and age that when you write a letter, you always, you know, like, thank your friends or mention people or tell them you love them or, or whatever. I would say this section, like many, many other sections in Scripture, demonstrate to us the fallacy of many modern denominations. Christianity was never about organizations, buildings, international ministries, Christian books, TV programs, and podcasts. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not casting shade on them. They can all be used to further the gospel, and we're grateful for them. But simply to say, our mission as a believer in Christ, our faith in the finished work of Christ and the sacrifice that he's made for us, our job when it comes to seeing the kingdom of God come on earth isn't about getting things done like building buildings or having a ministry that everyone knows. Or being a well-known author. Or being highly respected for what you do. The kingdom of God is about relationships. And that's what we see here in these verses. Peter, I think this is profound. Peter, the apostle, the rock upon which Christ said he would build the church. Peter had friends. Real friends. He was a real person. He had real relationships. He knew people. He cared about people. He's pouring out his heart in this letter for the people that he loves. This is not a theological... um, what, What is? My mind just went blank. When you're trying to get your PhD and you write your... Dissertation, thank you. I was thinking dysentery, and I'm like, that's just not right. And then greet each other with a kiss of love. This is love and affection between believers. This isn't just attending meetings, this isn't just giving money. It's not helping out from time to time on various projects. It's the people sitting around you right now in this local church. We're not the only church, but you've been called to be a part of this local church. They need you. They are suffering too. They need your love. They need the peace that comes from your friendship, from your comfort, from your encouragement. We need each other. That's what Metro Life Church is all about. If you were wondering, let's stand and would you pray with me? Just to make clear, nothing that I've said is possible apart from the grace of God. I'm not telling you to do all this, I am asking you and encouraging you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Humility is a work the Holy Spirit does in us. Cooperate with Him and you humble yourself. Make every effort to humble yourself. Take every opportunity to humble yourself. Why? Because God cares for you. He wants you to live your life in freedom from what other people think, freedom from just your feelings. Freedom from what other people have done to you or say to you. Freedom that only comes from life in the Spirit. So Christ wants the best for you. And He's so smart (laughs) that whatever you're going through, He knows is the best thing to bring you into the place he wants you to be. That's hard. I'm going through things. I'm a part of clubs I never wanted to be. But God knows the worst things in my life. I'm a cancer survivor. Never dreamed of, never wanted to have cancer. Had it three times. I can tell you, and I have told you, Cancer is one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know why? Because it broke so much pride in my life. I'm living a life that I would have never dreamed of because of the hardest things that I've been through. Not the easiest things. You know what? The easiest things I've kind of forgotten the hard things. They do a work in us. What's the work? They conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. And I think you'd agree. What's more important than that? Nothing. So as we worship this morning, just a moment, just let the words of these songs sink in. Let the Holy Spirit just meditate on what you've heard. And let's all ask our great and loving, caring, magnificent, all-powerful God to change our hearts permanently. That after this day, not because of my message, but because of His work, we will never be the same. Father, we ask for that sincerely and simply in the precious name of Jesus.